And live from the NASDAQ market site, this is Fast Money. I am Brian Sullivan, and we have another big show for you tonight. Joining us tonight are Tim Seymour, Jeff Mills, Karen Feinerman, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, a Tuesday turnaround. Buyers coming back into stocks following yesterday's sell-off. But should you believe this bounce? We're going to debate and get some answers. What really went on between the Saudis and Russia at the OPEC meeting that caused the split? Lima Croft was there, and she was with the Saudis right after. She's here tonight on that and where oil may be headed. Plus, we are breaking out your volatility playbook. The four stocks our traders tonight say are worth a second look for the long run, even given these big market swings. All right, so much more ahead on the markets and your money on Fast Money tonight. But we have to begin with this. The developing story out of the White House as new details emerge about President Trump's possible economic stimulus plan to combat a virus-led downturn in the economy. Let's get right now to Eamon Javers at the White House with more on how this is all developing right now. Eamon. Brian, we are about a half an hour out from a White House press briefing that is slated to include the vice president and the coronavirus task force. Now, aides throughout the evening last night and the day today have suggested that that could be a place where the president might roll out some of his economic ideas. But we are not hearing that at this point. There is no plan as of right now, this moment, uh, you know, a half hour out for the president to attend that briefing. So the president last night said that today he would hold a news conference to roll out uh, major economic initiatives that would be dramatic in scope. So far today, we have not heard any official confirmation of any of those. The president has not held such a news conference, and we don't know whether he's coming to this 530 news conference or not. So keep an eye peeled for that uh, in the bottom half of this hour. Meanwhile, we are getting some details about what the president's been saying to lawmakers up on Capitol Hill, including that the president uh, pitched them behind closed doors on the idea of eliminating the payroll tax altogether, a 0% rate on the payroll tax from the employer side and the employee side through the end of the year. And I'm told in that room there behind closed doors with Senate Republicans, uh, there was also some discussion of eliminating the payroll tax altogether. Now, that would carry an enormous price price tag, more than a trillion dollars, a huge amount of money, and also has implications for Social Security and Medicare, because that's where a lot of those funds are earmarked. Uh, ultimately, will that be too big an ask for Capitol Hill uh, is, a, is a really important question here. So I don't think we should leap yeah. to the conclusion that that's a done deal, Brian. But well, let's, those I mean, are the kinds of ideas that are kicking around here at the White House now. No official proclamation of what the president's uh, plan is, though, at this point. Yeah, and it sounds like maybe there's some disagreement if we haven't had anything come out yet, although we're going to find out. And, Eamon, I mean, listen, if we did a 0% payroll tax, to your point, that is a, what is it, the nine-comma club. I mean, that is the trillion-dollar club. It's enormous. And right. that's Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. So, ostensibly, the consumer would get the break, but at some point, the government would have to probably issue another trillion in debt to pay that because that gap has to be made up. Right. So I asked a White House official, how are you going to pay for that? If you're proposing to eliminate the payroll tax, not just for the year, but indefinitely, uh, this official said, hey, why are we always asked how, how we're going to pay for things? Taxes are our money to start with. Why do we have to pay for uh, being, uh, keeping our own money, essentially, was his argument. That's how this White House is approaching this question right now. But politically, it's a big, big number, Brian. And, and you yep. wonder whether Congress is going to go there or go all the way to what the president wants. The president is obviously in a go big or go home mode right now on this idea. I, I know it's not popular entirely among uh, members of Congress, Republicans included, not 
entirely popular among the president's own staff necessarily, uh, but the president did pitch it today, so we'll see where it lands. Yeah, we know that powerful Senator Richard Selby also said that he came out on Twitter and suggested that they do an infrastructure package as well, something we've been waiting on for about four years. Amy Javers. Yeah, I'm told, I, one more thing yep. real quick, Brian. I am told they are considering some federal aid here for the shale oil industry. Yep. They're saying it's not going to be a bailout. They're not guaranteeing that they're going to do it. But that conversation is happening behind closed doors also because of what we've seen in the oil markets this week. Yeah, we'll get more on uh, cheap debt and stolen oil in just a bit in the show. Eamon Javers, thank you very much. You bet, Frank. All right, well, so all of these reports out of the White House coming during another wild day for the markets and your money because, let's face it, on any other day, an 1,100-point gain for the Dow would be huge news. Cheers all around, leading the nightly news. Today, though, no other day. It was a day following a 2,000-point drop and one of the biggest percentage declines ever. So while today's move was certainly comforting, it did erase just about half of yesterday's losses. The Dow still down about 12% this year. In other words, today was much better than yesterday, Tim Seymour. But should anybody feel particularly good right now? You should feel tired. I mean, you, you, you know, think about the volatility we've had intraday. So we traded down 4% out of the gates off of what had been optimism. And Eamon just talked about these are the kinds of ideas. This doesn't, you know, I, I feel like we've been down this movie. We've seen this movie, been down this road, pick your metaphor. But I, I'll leave that aside for now. We then rallied almost 5.2%. The most impressive things and the things that would give me the most comfort were uh, we've essentially had a 50 basis point rise in the 10-year note. So um, essentially almost a three-point sell-off, which is unheard of. You thought that the rallies were unheard of, at least in one day. Um, you'd think the world was coming to an end if we were at normal pricing. Um, the dollar rallied, which perversely was almost uh, a, a risk-on moment. It's usually a risk-off moment. Uh, and the yen sold off 3%. So we continue with the hyperbole in terms of what the market is doing. Um, I, yeah. I think until credit begins to settle down, it's very difficult. And, and we could have said this a week ago. Um, you can... Day traders are having a great time. Um, knock yourself out. Uh, these are dangerous markets. Yeah, and, and I want to show, if we could guys put up the JNK, which is that junk bond ETF that we talk about because we've been talking about credit. If you look at this, pay attention to something tonight when they mark to market. See if this ETF goes below its net asset value. It continues to fall. Remember, it's held junk debt. If junk debt is not liquid, Karen, mm -hmm. and this ETF is supposed to be liquid. It's just something to watch about the net asset value of some of these widely owned high-yielding ETFs. Something yeah. on my radar. Is it something on your radar? Absolutely. I mean, HYG, we've talked about a lot. Explain, it's similar. Sorry, explain yeah. what dropping below NAV might mean, because I don't think a lot of people understand that. Well, so this portfolio owns, I mean, this, this ETF owns a portfolio of junk bonds, right? And they are marked at supposedly, wherever they trade. However, if you get in really illiquid markets, you can see very wide spreads for where any given underlying bond could be. I mean, the, so the HYG is very similar to the JNK and, and that they're junk bonds, so they're below investment grade. And as we see, even with rates going down, credit quality is starting to deteriorate, so the HYG is going down. I've been short this for a while against, for example, I'm long banks, so short this. But now I tried to short more, and I couldn't get a borrow anymore. So you I mean, couldn't. What, I does could that not. what does that tell you? That tells me that the short is getting crowded. So I, I want to remain short, but I've got to be aware now, okay, this isn't like, wow, that was an interesting risk reward. The risk reward's changing now. It was 89 10 days ago. It's 84. I don't know. Still have value? 82. 
I think things could really get uglier. But it's a I mean, a seven point move in this index is really a lot. The, uh, the investment grade index, LQD, is another one. Short that. That rates move today, so it should go down. But, but it went way beyond the move in rates. So what's interesting about this and what Karen said is that you can't get a borrow and it's hard to short HYG at this point in time. What a lot of people do, because this is highly correlated to the stock market, is they'll use S&P puts or S&P futures. So that's the link between the bond market, the junk bond market, and the S&P 500. So if you can't hedge out your junk bond exposure, you go and you sell S&P futures, and that adds selling pressure to the market. So besides just kind of the credit qualities and the concerns about uh, uh, oil companies going out of business, there is this kind of mechanical selling that goes on that investors need to be aware and that's, of as well. And that is, I th- BK, you, you nailed it. I mean, I think, you know, when you we're all on the phones. As you do. We're, we're you. all on the phones do. all day long. And everybody you talk to that's deep in the market, and we're, listen, we're a TV program, so we, we have to sort of speak in a more general way. They're going into these things about what's happening in the internals of the market. I'm thinking, well, how could I explain? First off, I'm not sure I understand mm-hmm. it. Can I explain it on the air? What you said between the credit markets and equity for selling on the S&P because right. you got to raise cash any way you can. Raise cash or hedge a position that you can't sell short. So, you know, let's just say, example, it was IBM and you couldn't sell that short, but you needed to hedge it for some reason. You could then go and sell short S&P, the SPY, the ETF. You could buy puts and that would put pressure on the entire market. Even though you're just trying to hedge out the IBM, yeah. you're actually impacting the whole market. Gosh, Jeff Mills, I forgot that we went up 1,100 points on the Dow today. Is everything okay? Everything is probably not okay. You know, you tend to see these moves after big down moves, and yesterday was certainly a big down move. But to get back to credit, it's not just high yield. There's a relationship between the price-to-earnings ratio and the S&P 500 and investment-grade credit as well. So I brought a chart along. They can probably put it up. But if you look at investment-grade credit spreads, they're typically pretty highly correlated to the P.E. and the S&P 500. So as credit spreads start to blow out, as there's stress in the credit market, investors are willing to pay less for their equities. What you've seen happen recently is a little bit of a gap. So that chart you're looking at right now, the orange line is credit spreads. It's actually inverted. So that means credit spreads have blown out. There is now a gap between the P.E. ratio, so the valuation at which the market is trading, and where investment-grade credit spreads are. So based on current credit spreads, that would foretell a P.E. ratio of about 14 and a half times in the marketplace. So you take 14 and a half times, you multiply it by forward earnings, you're talking about a level around 24, 2500 in the S&P 500. So obviously this isn't the only thing you should be looking at, but in terms of trying to pick a level and to look at the credit markets and figure out what they might be telling us, I think this is an interesting relationship. Let's quickly go around the horn here. Do you buy anything today, BK? Uh, puts. Again, yes. betting against I, the market. I put, I put them out again. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah. No, tried to short HYG. And that, so that's all you did today, just watched. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Think about what do I want to own and where. I hate days like this. I hate buying stocks on days like this. Why is that? Because it feels like a sort of sucker's rally or sort of, I don't know, it just seems like and a It's just a unsettled. Yeah. And I think you're getting mixed signals, too. So if you look at the options market, put call ratios blown out. So there's stress there. So that would be a good sign that maybe you could come back into the market. But if you look at positioning, you're still not yeah. seeing the net shorts that you would typically see in this kind of a market. And you also haven't seen sentiment come back. You know, we're looking at just survey measures of sentiment. I think there's still more wood to chop there. And also on the valuation side, I think there's more room to the downside. Well, involved, so the VIX closed at, at 47 uh, you know, today. So it, it's not like we're we're not in elevated times, but uh, I was actually nibbling some some index, uh, you know, 
exposure for, for clients. Remember, uh, what we're seeing throughout these difficult days, though, is you have to have a plan. You have to have a context for where valuations make sense. One of the reasons why we're going to talk about four stocks later on in the show. But, um, it, you know, at some point, look, I, I, I look at the I look at the charts. Uh, I look at the levels. And, and in the current credit environment, even though I am concerned and I don't need to wholesale buy stuff, um, I, I think I think twenty seven hundred twenty seven fifty um, is is kind of where we're headed or twenty six fifty. If you look at the the, the, the weekly moving averages. Yeah. So I don't want to get into that. You were asking me what I was doing. Um, I, I do think if you have a plan and if there are uh, you know people that have some cash to put to work, um, I, I don't think you need to time this market perfectly. In fact, I would urge you not to do that. Yeah. And, and, you know, listen, we went up 1,100 points, not making light of that. Bespoke Investment Research noted this incredible, folks. This is the 10th time out of 10 times the S&P has risen more than 2% following a Monday 5% drop. So this bounce was all but guaranteed, according to history. All right. Your next guest says her clients are not panicking, and they're looking to the Federal Reserve maybe to help keep a floor into this market, but with more coronavirus cases every day and the real threat of a major economic slowdown ahead, how optimistic can you be really right now? Joining us is Mandy Zhu. She is Chief Equity Derivative Strategist at Credit Suisse. Mandy, welcome. No panic. Good. What are you advising, though, your clients to do? So I think what surprised a lot of people is that despite measures of volatility reaching post-crisis highs, if you just take a look at the VIX index, other measures in the option market are actually signaling, I wouldn't say calm, but certainly no panic. And that's backed up by the flow that we're seeing from the institutional clients, where what we're seeing is they're monetizing some hedges, they're resetting hedges, but they're not panic. They're not panicked, they're not grabbing for new hedges. And that, and that to me is a constructive sign. Can you explain what monetizing their hedges mean for our, I mean, is that, are they rolling out uh, essentially things that are working? Obviously, the Delta is, I'm getting really actually wonky. <laughs> no, we are, listen, Can you explain this? It's okay. It's okay because I feel like we're, I feel like we're all sort of helping viewers understand that there's a lot of stuff that goes on in this market, Tim, that's not just let's buy this ETF. This is the mechanics of the stuff that the pros like you guys deal with every day. And I think it's important. Sure. So monetization means they're selling out of their existing hedges and not buying any more. So basically, they're calling a bottom here. We're seeing some of that, but the majority of it is resetting of hedges, which is what yours talking about, rolling them down. So maintaining the same exposure, but given how much the market has moved, they're rolling the strikes further down. So buying puts, put spreads that are further down, given the market move. And, and in terms of sectors, it, you, do you see them going after certain parts? And, you know, we obviously know which sectors have been the big laggards and, in fact, the ones that, exactly. that frankly, look like the credit issues are significant. What, what are you seeing there? Sure. So, I mean, I think part of the reason why institutional investors have actually held up okay this so far this year is that a lot of them since the beginning of the year have been adding to shorts, and those shorts have been concentrated in the value and cyclical sectors. What are they? Energy financials, right? And they, yeah. Exactly. And those obviously have sold out a lot more, and that has really helped, up, uh, helped out investors in terms of performance. So, Mandy, we rarely see the VIX hang around 40 for any, yes. even days, right? <laughs> so uh, where do you think it's going? I think in the near term, we're probably likely to see uh, continued volatility, just given this macro environment, this headline-driven environment. One point I would like to make on the VIX is that even though it's very, very elevated at 40-plus to 50, um, it's actually trading below what the market is realizing in terms of realized volatility. So VIX at 40 to 50 is implying an average daily move in the S&P, about 3%. We're getting 4 to 5% daily moves the past two weeks, right? So the option market is actually not freaking out. It's not panicking. It says, you know, 
expect continued turmoil given you know, the macro headlines, yeah. but both the VIX and other measures that we track in the option market are more contained than you would expect given the headlines. But bottom line, and we'll let you go, Mandy, with this, is based on what you talked to us, some of that technical stuff that matters a lot, by the way, doesn't look like the overall selling is probably done. No, th- we're not at capitulation yet. So this is a big when difference. When will we know? A 2,500-point down day? A VIX at 75? Oh. So I think what we're tracking is the client positioning and the difference between this sell-off versus fourth quarter of 18 is in fourth quarter of 18, institutional investors were selling their core holding stock holdings and shifting to cash. What we're seeing right now is they're buying portfolio protection. They're hedging, given yeah. the macro environment, but they're holding on to their core longs, selectively adding in certain situations. Uh, but certainly, you know, this to us is more constructive than what we saw in fourth quarter of 2018. All right, Mandy Zhu, Credit Suisse. Good stuff, Mandy. Th- thank you very much. BK, I mean, you bought puts. It sounds like Mandy's clients, the, what their positioning goes into your trade. Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, it doesn't, today didn't feel like this was the bottom. I think there's just so much uncertainty out there that continues. And I think we have several more weeks of this before we get, maybe, hopefully, we get some kind of clarity. But remember, we've gotten hit on two fronts. It's not just the virus headlines, but it's also the oil headlines that you guys talked a lot about last night. That is another huge economic drag here. And until we get some clarity on that, it's going to be really hard to have a sustainable rally. All right. Good stuff there, guys. Thank you very much, Mandy. Take care. We'll see you soon. All right. On deck on this big night, what really happened between the Russians and the Saudis? We're going to hear from Halima Croft, who was there at the OPEC meeting with the Saudis over the weekend. Plus, the idea is to buy low or lower. So coming up, your traders will uncover their top picks for stocks for the long run. And remember, be sure to watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app in this day and age. You need CNBC on all day long, and you can do it from your phone, iPad, whatever it is, with the CNBC app, and we're back right after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. And welcome back to Fast Money. Well, oil having its best day of the year today, but doesn't say a whole lot because yesterday it had its worst day in nearly 30 years. But this is the question everybody wants to know the answer to. What exactly happened that caused the Russians and the Saudis to take their oil barrels and go home and send oil and the markets literally into the tank? RBC Salima Croft was not only at the OPEC meeting where it happened, but also was with the Saudis over the weekend. She joined us now by phone. Halima, I can't believe I missed the meeting, but I'm glad you were there. What the heck happened? I mean, I think what happened was essentially the Russians said no deal. The Saudis were looking, as you noted, a 1.5 million barrel a day production cut that required the Russians to kick in an extra 300,000 barrels. Now, the Russians have not been fully complying with their previous OPEC commitment. They were not going to give up any additional barrels. And Saudi basically said, if you're not going to play ball, we're going home. And then you had the Russian oil minister leave the building and essentially say, from April 1, every producer 
could do whatever they wanted, and that's when the market started to be concerned about being flooded with oil. Who drove, in your mind, and you're there watching this, getting insight, who drove the split? It's not you. It's me. (laughs) I really do think that everybody was expecting the Russians to give in at the end. I mean, this is what's been happening since 2016. The Russians always say it's going to be difficult, always say they may not do it, and always show up. This was the time when the Russians finally said, no deal. And there are reports that Igor Sechin, the powerful CEO of Rosneft, really drove that decision. He was essentially like, why should we give another lifeline to shale? Make those shale companies balance the market. And frankly, I don't want to hear any more about American energy abundance. I'm tired of these sanctions that the U.S. can do without any pain because of all this oil. So I think Sachin was very focused on the U.S. In some respects, Sachin has become the new Naimi. He's the one essentially saying, let the high-cost producer of the United States balance this market. So uh, ultimately, there's a case here where and the Russians tend to, they're great chess players, and they think you know, a couple moves down the board. Also, the, the geopolitics of Russia's role in the Middle East, and, and for that matter, in Latin America and Venezuela, um, continues to evolve, and it continues to be very strategic for Putin. Um, can you talk about any of that? Because I, I think you look at the, the chess pieces. I, I agree this is, you know, U.S. shale breaks even at, you know, $50 free cash flow, and we're nowhere near there, so this is painful. Uh, but it's also geopolitics. You're absolutely right. I mean, traditionally, we've thought about Russian OPEC privileging the deals they're cutting in the Middle East. There's better relations in Latin America, in Africa. This has been a vehicle for soft power gains for Russia. An oil deal has become a trade deal. But that was one set of actors in Russia pushing an argument. On the flip side, again, you have to look at Igor Sechin. He has said from the beginning that Russia should not cooperate with OPEC. He's been very focused on wanting to maximize volume because of the tax structure. He gets more gains the more barrels he puts on the market. And his big geopolitical argument is American energy abundance is bad for Russia because the United States can sanction everybody. We just sanctioned Rosneft trading, and we don't pay the price at the pump. So I think it is geopolitical and economic for for Sachin, and I think that's where we stand right now. If the Russians decide to cave in and give up those barrels, I think the war ends. You know, there's a lot of people that'll be out there, and I've already heard from some of them, Helena, that'll say, well, to heck with them. We'll just, you know, U.S. refiners will buy U.S. shale, and we don't need the Saudis, and we don't need the Russians, and we can be independent and put an eagle on my shoulder and eat a hot dog at the baseball game. Here's the problem, is that U.S. refiners probably want those cheaper barrels that are now floating around. Right. If, if they're in a price war, we can buy those barrels at a discount instead of buying American barrels, literally for a U.S. refinery. The U.S. producers now are stuck with oil. Either they can't sell. They got to put it into storage at a cost. That's why this is such a downward spiral, is it not? Well, I think what's so interesting is we've been talking about American energy independence. Trump keeps saying we don't need Middle Eastern oil. But he's now apparently calling the Saudis saying, you know what? Could you dial back your oil price war? I mean, what's so interesting is when prices are high, we call the Saudis and say, give us more barrels. Now the Saudis have essentially given up too many barrels. We're calling the Saudis and saying, take those barrels back. And so we're not as independent as we think we are if we're consistently having to call the Saudis and try to get them to change their oil policy. 
Helena Croft, RBC, spectacular, amazing insight for somebody who was on a plane in Vienna and then in Riyadh, and we certainly appreciate you coming on, Halima. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Brian. I, really, I mean, I think, Tim, this is pretty incredible stuff that we're dealing I mean, this is political brinksmanship at the highest level that's going to end yeah. up with 100,000 Americans out of work because of it. Well, this, the, and this has gone on for a long time. And, and, and I said this yesterday, Russia does very well uh, in a lower oil price environment, certainly one where there's a risk off and their currency gets crushed because they're dollar exporters. They have a low cost uh, in, on the domestic front. Um, and yes, Idris Sechen, look, they, they put together Rosneft about 15 years ago, uh, 20 years ago when I was living out there. And, and they made it a national champion and they made it a company that really dictated political policy because there is no line yeah. between Putin and Sechen. And in fact, you know, I won't get into that. I mean, it's, it's an interesting time to be buying some of those oil companies. And, and I know, and listen, I, I love the industry as far as the people I've met and people, I, you know, people, oh, now we got to buy these oil stocks are so cheap. Here's what's hard about it, BK. We are really the only nation in the world, oil producing nation in the world, who doesn't have one nationalized oil and gas company. Russia may have a few small ones, but it's Rosneft. Let's be clear, right? We don't have that. Well, so we just a hundred death by a hundred cuts. Well, right, and so that's that's what's interesting about this is that this is the Russians apparently have a long time that they can sustain these cuts. Saudi Arabia, probably not as much as Russia, but they can do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to your point, we don't have a nationalized uh, nationalized oil company. Let's see what the president comes up with. We might have one pretty soon. But this is a strategic yeah. industry for our country, and they will be protected somehow, and they should be. And that's what Eamon reported. It. It's either through the debt or whatever. All right, coming up, our traders are going to crack open their playbooks because not everything is a sell, right? It's indiscriminate selling today or... Yesterday, today it's indiscriminate buying, but they've got four names that they say may be worth a second look, longer term, in these wild market swings. We're going to bring you those names ahead. First, we are headed live to the White House where we're expecting an update on the coronavirus outbreak. Here's a live look. We're back on Fast Money right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. White House officials are about to hold a press briefing on the coronavirus outbreak and possibly break some news on what, if any, kind of economic plans that they might have to mitigate some of the damage. We're going to bring you this live as soon as it begins. But until that time, the question tonight may also be, is Trump going to bail out the travel industry? The stocks moved today a little bit on hopes that he could. But cold comfort for investors, Royal Caribbean and Carnival Cruises down 50 and 60 percent this year. American, other airlines down 30 and 40 percent. 
this year. Jeff Mills, any reason to buy these names now based on the concept that we might get a bailout of some kind? Look, I think now, no, because whether you're talking about the airlines or whether you're talking about the cruise lines, I think there's probably more pain in the near term. Take the cruise lines, for example. They're probably going to have to institute massive discounts to try to draw people back in. So I think near term, there's just too much uncertainty. Even though they're down some 60-odd percent, I think there could be more downside to go. Longer term, I might be a little bit more optimistic. And if you have the stomach for it, you might want to poke around here a little bit. I think some of the bankruptcy concerns might be overdone. They have revolving lines of credit that haven't been tapped. So in terms of defaulting on debt, maybe a little bit overblown here. And I think the demographics are actually a tailwind. Look, people have short, uh, short memories. Once this passes, you have a big demographic of baby boomers with $120 billion so of an annual budget. <laughs> you know what? But here's the thing. I wouldn't have gotten on a cruise ship before all this, so I'm a bad Fair person. To, I'm a bad person to Problem ask. Problem is people book now for six months Correct. and a year from now. So this could be a nobody. I mean, no. I'm sure there's some people that are bottom feeders looking to book. I think there was an article Wait. today. Meet the insane people. Well, that, that's yeah. why I, I read have, it somewhere. I can't remember. You have where to it was. have the stomach for it. But if you can look out and take a multi-year point of view, with stocks down as much as they are, there could be some benefit yeah. to buying at these but, levels. And if you look at the U.S., just real quick, the U.S. So that's a big market. It's a developed market, but only 50 percent penetration in terms of their uh, their primary market and their customers have actually gone on cruises. So I think that it's a growing industry, once this fades, you know, there could be some value here. The problem with playing for a bailout, whether it be in the cruise industry or the airline industry, is generally speaking, by the time you get to a bailout, your equity is worth a bagel, zero, or close to that. So it's hard to play for a bailout here. Yeah, maybe they get some money, maybe they get bailed out, but I think you've got more pain ahead, is what I'm trying to say, before you get to that point. Can can I ask a question that I'm not sure I need an answer from, but... are cruise liners strategic to our country in any way? Should we be bailing out the cruise ship industry? I, I don't. I, anyway, so don't answer that question. Let's talk about airlines for a second. <laughs> United rallied 125 percent today um, and, and is still down 41 percent from where it was in, in essentially you know, yeah. February. Um, you have a dynamic here where if you're looking at the charts and you're looking at at least price action. Um, you get some sense that United might have capitulated on Friday where it traded almost four and a half times uh, average daily volume. And you've had this place, though, for the last four days, you've had 10 percent intraday vol swings. Today was close to 15. Um, I think it's getting interesting. It, getting getting interesting. And Warren Buffett, we know, is interested in Delta Airlines I get before this stuff happened, Karen. But listen, and I'm not I don't want to pile on to what BK said. And market cap's not a great example because it factors in the pain of debt. Royal Caribbean's debt, according to S&P, is $11.7 billion. Their market cap is now $10.7 billion. The debt is greater than the market value of the company. But they might have time. I don't know when those, de- when those debts mature. So they yeah. might have time to ride it out. I don't know what a, what a bailout would even look like. I don't know if it's just a sort of... Uh, you know, a course. life raft of sorts. Ah, there you go. Oh, you. Clever. Yeah. I don't know if it's just, you know, underwriting their debt, sort of giving them lifelines. Um, I don't know. But I, I actually for the airline. Would you buy I, any, like to, any airline or c- cruise no, stock not, now? No, not yet. And I had owned airlines. I sold some well, some poorly. I think that um, I think there's more pain to come. I really feel like the perception of where we are in the S curve of coronavirus in the U.S., we haven't even really begun to accelerate yet. If we're like China, maybe things bottom out as yeah. we're really accelerating. Royal Caribbean's got a five and a quarter note due November of 2022. That's kind of the, the oil industry, too. The, the, the thing that may work here 
is that the debt isn't really due until 2022, 2023 for most of the oil companies, for at least Royal Caribbean. And, and, and that may be the lifeboat. Right. But it also means that they keep Tim pumping oil. To. Right. They, it means they keep pumping they oil. If they're not out of business, then that means oil prices stay low. Oh, and by the way, even if some of these oil and gas companies go bankrupt, which they probably will, they're still probably going to pump oil. Right. I mean, they're not liquidating. Right. It's like just the equities, of, to your point, a zero. Right. But they're still pumping because they got creditors. They got private equity that's ticked off or whatever. All right. Coming up, the one stock analysts say may have been unfairly punished as fears over the virus spread. We're going to bring you that name ahead. There's your mystery chart. Huh. Look at you to determine if it was overpunished. Plus, a not-so-chill call on Netflix while the streaming service may not be the homebody stock play you think it is. Plus, a reminder, we are awaiting that White House press briefing. When it begins, we'll bring you to it live. In the meantime, we'll be back with more Fast Money with what Fast Money does. Stick around. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. White House officials are about to hold a press briefing on the coronavirus outbreak. Supposed to begin about eight minutes ago. Obviously, they're huddling up there. We'll see if it's just Vice President Mike Pence, who, of course, is the head of the coronavirus task force, or perhaps the president himself makes some kind of an appearance or maybe announces some kind of economic stimulus or a payroll tax cut or more. When that begins, we will bring you to it. Well, as we await that, let's get back to business. One name in the beaten down transportation sector got a bit of a boost today. UPS shares up after Stiefel upgraded the stock to a buy, saying the recent sell-off has created a Interesting opportunity for investors looking for yield in a, quote, fearful market. UPS currently yielding about four and a half percent. So, Jeff, is is UPS a name that you're going to bet on right here? Probably not. You know, I read I read the note and it seemed a little bit like the best house on a bad block story. They were talking about free cash flow. They were talking about dividend yield. I understand that. But there were material reductions in EPS estimates for 2020, 2021. And I think just generally the outlook for the parcel industry is not clear. We'll hear from FedEx next week. So we'll get some more information. It could actually lead to additional downgrades. And look, this stock has been incredibly volatile. It's been up to 120, back down to these levels probably four or five times over the last five years. It is cheaper now at these levels than it was because obviously earnings have grown. But I think volumes are at risk. I think the company's at risk for additional earnings downgrade. So I would not be buying with both hands here. Yeah. yeah and by the way, I don't know if folks at home know that Guy Adami actually worked at UPS at some point, <laughs> but I doubt we have any footage of that. I, I will say that it, we talked about the transports. And, and one of the difficult things about an environment like this is you can't invest in a bad neighborhood. And the transports uh, basically got back to uh, you know late, if not November 2016 levels um, when they opened up at least yesterday morning. Yeah. And, and I, you know, UPS is painted with part of that brush, even though I think they and FedEx um, have been treated much more cyclically than, than they should okay. be. I, I know there's a lot of big macro stuff going on. We're waiting on this press briefing. I get it. But let's do what Fast Money does, right? Which is we're trying to find opportunities for you and to see a volatility. Maybe there's some stocks out there that has been dumped out with the proverbial bathwater. So each of your traders tonight brought one pick that they think could be kind of a either a place to hide or maybe a good value down the long term. Tim, why don't you kick us off? It's J.P. Morgan. If you're going to own one bank, this is the one to own. And in terms of their diversified business, certainly they, their exposure to uh, the consumer is unquestioned. And if you think we're going to go into a consumer tailspin, this is this is a question. But um, we're, we're basically trading at around uh, 1.5 times 
price to tangible book, which is, is where you've wanted to buy this thing uh, five years ago. Um, I think their exposure to net interest income of all the money center banks is the least because of that diversification. And this is one of those stocks that I said, oh, boy, uh, I can't believe I can buy it here. Yeah, and I, I very much agree with the J.P. Morgan call. I also like Disney. That's a stock that I liked when it filled that gap in the low 130s after it popped after the Disney Plus announcement. So I think now trading at 17 times versus trading at 22 times at the end of last year, you haven't seen these valuations since the 18 sell-off, 11, and then in 08. So I think this is a name that you can own for the long term here. It's also 23% below its long-term moving average, so certainly punished a lot more than the broad market. I like that Disney call. I feel like if they were to announce that, that Los Angeles Disney closes or, or Orlando, I think that would be a day to buy it. I, I believe, actually, Karen, there was an analyst this morning, and I, all of our brains are just you know, <laughs> filled with mush. Speak for yourself. We, mine always is anyway, Tim, so take it easy, buddy. Which is, I think an analyst came out today, and you'll forgive me, I can't remember the firm, who said exactly that, that the day uh, they uh, announced Disney's, right. Disneyland uh, is closing, that's, yeah, that's right. when you buy the stock. I, I agree with whoever that is. Whoever that is out there, we apologize for <laughs> not knowing who you were. I agree. I think it, could, it wouldn't be so shocking to see Disney say that, right? Yeah, this, yeah I, this environment, right. Uh, it wouldn't be right. so shocked. So. All right, I believe that we've got to go right now to the White House. We'll come back hopefully in time to get our remaining picks. Let's go down to the White House where I believe the press briefing with Vice President Mike Pence is beginning. And uh, I couldn't be more proud uh, of the efforts of uh, the men and women standing behind me or all of those standing behind them. Uh, President Trump said from early on that this would be a whole of government approach. Uh, and today gives evidence of the fact that it is also a whole-of-America approach. We're bringing the full resources to the federal government and the full resources of, uh, of this great economy and our great business sector to bear in protecting the American people and protecting American families. A few updates from today. Um, uh, as we continue to expand testing availability across the country, testing is now available at all state labs. By the end of this week, there will be more than 4 million more tests made available in jurisdictions around the country. One million are already in place. Thanks to the good work of our top commercial labs that the President Trump brought together yesterday, uh, uh, LabCorp and Quest are in the process now of distributing and marketing coronavirus tests all across America. And we're working with state and local officials uh, to ensure that that happens as rapidly as possible. Um, but as the testing I is expanding, we wanted to make sure the American people uh, knew that testing uh, was available to them and that cost would not be a barrier. Today, President Trump assembled the top health insurance executives in America. Uh, and as we announced uh, earlier today, uh, all of our major health insurance companies have now joined with Medicare and Medicaid and agreed to uh, waive all co-pays, cover the cost of all treatment for those who contract the coronavirus. They've committed to no surprise billing, uh, and uh, they've committed to encourage telemedicine. Uh, it was a year ago uh, that Medicaid actually expanded to pay for uh, telemedicine. Medicare pays for telemedicine. So now for seniors who may think that they are either at risk or have contracted the disease, they can get medical advice without having to go to the doctor or go to an emergency room. Uh, I know I speak for President Trump when I say how grateful we are to see our health insurance industry step forward to meet this need so that 
that no American should be concerned uh, about, uh, about being able to pay for or afford the cost of a coronavirus test uh, if they deem and their doctor deems it to be appropriate and necessary. The President also went to Capitol Hill today to meet with members of the United States Senate Republican Caucus. There he talked about an economic package, including a call he's calling for payroll tax relief. And uh, I think uh, most important to the President's heart, we want to make sure that hourly workers, hardworking blue-collar Americans that may not have paid family leave today, that small and medium-sized businesses in America would be afforded the resources to provide paid leave so that no one would feel that they have to go to work uh, if they might be infected or if they might have been exposed to the coronavirus. We had a, a good reception on Capitol Hill. Our legislative teams have fanned out. We're going to be working with Republican and Democrat leadership to move an economic package. Larry Kudlow will be reflecting on that uh, in just a few moments. Uh, we also talked about um, what are known as N95 masks, and we're working uh, Senator Deb Fisher and others have important legislation that would extend temporary um, uh, liability protections so that masks that are made for industrial use could be sold to hospitals to ensure that our health care workers are properly protected and outfitted. And we're grateful for growing bipartisan support for that measure, uh, and we're going to be working earnestly with Republicans and Democrats to move a, a uh, reform that would make more uh, N95 masks available. I'm also uh, pleased to report that we did receive this afternoon a, a comprehensive proposal from the cruise line industry, a proposal that includes advanced screening, improving medical services on ships, providing for uh, airlift evacuation and land-based care uh, at the expense of the cruise lines for anyone that might be in not only infected with the coronavirus, but uh, with any serious illness. We'll be reviewing that in the next 24 hours. The President's objective is for us to make the cruise lines uh, safer, even as we work with the cruise lines to ensure that, that no one in our particularly vulnerable population uh, is, uh, is, is going out on a cruise um, in the near future. Uh, I'm going to recognize uh, uh, Dr. Fauci to talk about where we are. Um, uh, and Dr. Burks will give us uh, some research that she's done on the scope. We'll have other updates. But let me say once again, uh, this is a whole-of-government approach. And from early on, President Trump has insisted that our, that our government at the federal level, all of our partners at the state level, work in concert to protect the American people. And uh, as we stand here today, uh, the risks to the average American of contracting the coronavirus remains low. But we're absolutely determined to give every American the tools and the information that they need to protect themselves, their families, their, their workplace, their schools, uh, and, uh, and we're going to work together. Uh, we're going to work together to see our way through this uh, and, uh, and working with leaders in both parties in Congress, working with with leaders at the state level all across this nation. I'm confident we will. With that, uh, Dr. Tony Fauci for an update on the status. Thank you very much, Mr. Vice President. Just to give you a very brief uh, sketch of what we do every day, the cases continue to increase globally. Uh, we're partic paying particular attention to the cases in Europe, in Italy, and France, in which we're starting to see that up at the same time as the relative number of new cases come down from China, 
What we're seeing in Europe is that Europe is in that upslope. So that's something that is expected. That's the way these kinds of outbreaks go. This is not a surprise to anybody if you look at the history of infectious diseases outbreaks. In the United States, we continue to have new cases. As of this morning, there were 712, I believe, with 27 deaths guaranteed by the time of this evening. That's going to be up, and there'll be several more. And tomorrow, there'll be several more. So we realize that this is something, obviously, that we've been saying all along that we're taking very seriously. Now the question is, what are we going to do about that? And there are a number of things that one can do in order to blunt it. If you look at the curves of outbreaks, you know, they go big peaks and they come down. What we need to do is flatten that down. That would have less people infected. That would ultimately have less deaths. You do that by trying to interfere with the natural flow of the outbreak. So what we're saying today is that although we keep coming in and saying appropriately that as a nation, the risk is relatively low, there are parts of the country right now that are having community spread in which the risk there is clearly a bit more than that. And you know the places, you know, Washington State, California, New York, and Florida. But what I want to talk to you about today, just for a moment or two, is that we would like the country to realize that as a nation, we can't be doing the kinds of things we were doing a few months ago. That it doesn't matter if you're in a state that has no cases or one case. You have to start taking seriously what you can do now that if and when the infections will come, and they will come, sorry to say, sad to say, they will. But when you're dealing with an infectious disease, you know, we always have that metaphor that people talk about, that Wayne Gretzky, you know, he doesn't go where the puck is, he's going where the puck is going to be. Well, we want to be where the infection is going to be, as well as where it is. So what we have here, if, if you could see that here, what, it's here is that if you go to coronavirus.gov, remember when Dr. Burks yesterday mentioned some of the things that we put together. These are really simple. Keeping the workplace safe, keeping the home safe, keeping the schools safe, and keeping commercial establishments safe. This should be universal for the country. Everyone should be doing that, whether you live in a zone that has community spread or not. When you have community spread, you're obviously going to ratchet up the kinds of mitigations that you have. But at a minimum, this is the minimum that we should be doing. So everybody should say, all hands on deck, this is what we need to do. So I'll stop there, and later I'll be happy to answer questions. Thank you, Dr. Crunch. Thank you, Mr. Vice President, and thank you, Dr. Fauci, for that clarity. We continue to monitor the situation across the country and across the globe, and we are very fortunate between Dr. Fauci and I, we have long-term contacts out there in many of these countries that are experiencing current outbreaks. We continue to review all the scientific literature to look for insights and to really determine who's at the greatest risk. And that's why we've talked to you about people with immunodeficiencies at any age, people with medical conditions, and the elderly. And how important it is for all of us to take these precautions in the household to protect others. Because we have circulating flu and other respiratory diseases at this time. We all have to act like all of those diseases, any respiratory disease, can be transmitted to others. And as we said yesterday, we're hoping that decreases all the respiratory disease we're experiencing. Finally, we got new reports out of China um, who had nine pregnant women um, during an acute COVID infection, and all nine were infected. 
both, um, and they delivered while they were infected, and all nine babies were healthy and the mothers were healthy. So we continue to look for data like that to be reassuring to the American public at the same time, ensuring that every single person is participating in this response to this virus and taking those precautions that we should be taking every day. If we start doing this today, we will be ready next year for any of our respiratory diseases because I think we'll be able to show that these simple, simple household, simple work, simple school, simple business approaches across the country can change all of our respiratory diseases. So we thank you for getting the message out. We thank you for the participating and ensuring in your households and in households around America that we're protecting all of those who need our support right now. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci. And this information is available at coronavirus.gov. And uh, uh, as we said, we can't say often enough, the risks of contracting the coronavirus to the average American remains low. But for senior citizens with serious underlying chronic health conditions, the potential for serious consequences is very real. And make no mistake about it, by practicing these habits in your home, in your school, in your business, you're not only protecting your health, but you're also protecting those uh, that are most vulnerable. Uh, with that, uh, for an update on our, the progress that President Trump made today with our health insurance uh, companies, I'd like to recognize Seema uh, Verma. As the Vice President said, we had a terrific meeting with the insurance companies, a real example of a public... All right, you've been listening in to the White House's press conference about the coronavirus outbreak, a number of updates from Vice President Pence and others, of course, waiting on Larry Kudlow, the National Economic Council director, to speak about what maybe fiscal or economic plan they might have. By the way, I want to show up TDOC, Teladoc, getting a shout-out, virtual doctors getting a shout-out. Uh, from Vice President Pence, obviously, when you look at this, BK, no, no stock has sort of really that you know been focused in on as much, kind of out of nowhere. Right. Fad, though, is there any reason? I mean, you're getting no, a I mean, shout-out from the vice president. Well, that's, yes. I mean, I think if you look at this, there's going to be several things. We've talked about Zoom that come out of this that were somewhat, okay, maybe I'd like to try that. Now it's a necessity. You get yep. used to it. So I think probably for the longer run, you know, while it's up a little bit or up a lot right now, uh, because it was mentioned, I think yep. on pullbacks, this okay. is something you look at. And we've got to get, we're going to take a short break and get back with Karen and BK's picks that we promised you earlier. We're back. All right, we'll do final trades. Tim. Yeah, one of the names I was going to offer up before, so I'll throw it in there now, is MSG. Again, this has been hit. People are, you know, attendance and whatnot are, although I'm going to a concert with the Allman Brothers tonight. Anyway, MSG, take a look at this one. Great company. Yeah. Tim mentioned it earlier, but I think J.P. Morgan is worth a look here. You can buy it at nine times forward earnings. You haven't been able to get it this cheap since 2011, J.P. Morgan. Okay, your final trades are also the names you were going to mention earlier. Yes, so it does double duty. The one I missed for so long, Lululemon. It's actually come in $60. I didn't buy it yet. I hope I get a chance below 200 It's a superb company. It's not cheap, but it is the highest quality. So for me, I want to look at things that I know. There's so many uncertainties out there, but I know two things. One, they're going to print a lot of money, and two, that oil is a huge input into gold mining. So GDX, I want to buy that one. Buyer the gold miners. All right, guys, uh, good show on a big day with the Dow up 1,100 points. Thanks for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. Mad Money with Jim Cramer begins right now.